we moved, my family and I, my wife, my two children, we moved to Florida in 1992, moved from Massachusetts. We uh, drove down, it was this month uh, in 92, I, I guess that's 26 years ago. Um, doesn't seem that long, but boy, it's, it, it is. 26 years ago, we drove down two cars. Uh, we had a, uh, a station wagon that uh, we had, and then I had a Chevy Sprint, a little three-cylinder Suzuki motor. It was a really nifty car, but it had no air conditioning. And I, I of course, got that car to drive. And uh, we came down, hot day, middle of July in Florida, and uh, entered the state and I fell in love with Florida. I've, I've, I've loved Florida ever since. I've just enjoyed being here. I know it's got its challenges at times in terms of weather and things like that, but I just, I think, I think it's, it's just been marvelous. And, and we've had a great time uh, just being here and, and digging our roots in deep. One of the fun things we did that we had never done before when we came is we had our home built. We uh, had a home built in Cypress Springs, right over in this side of town. Uh, development on, on the corner of Dean Road and, and Curry Ford, and, and it was fun. To, uh, we lived in an apartment while our house was being finished up for a few months. Go to watch that being built, and I just got—I was fascinated with how homes were built, and and uh, just the fun part of that. And sort of in the spirit of that, a few months later, I think that probably the spring of next year, they have what they call the Street Street of Dreams. I think they still do it. They builders will come together. They'll build. Uh, model homes, uh, four or five in a new development, and then they'll, they'll have people come and, and look at them uh, before they're, they're even purchased. And uh, this Street of Dreams was up in Seminole County uh, in Aliqua, and uh, we went up, never didn't know what to expect. We got there at the park, and they took you in a golf cart to this new development. These four big, big, pristine homes were there. And uh, you had to pay, you know, to, to get in. But you would you'd go in and you just got to go in and you got to go look at these homes and, and all their beauty and how they're put together. And of course, they come in, they have different designers come in and they, and they furnish them as well. These beautiful homes with all the furniture just so, all the colors matching, big bedrooms. I remember one closet was bigger than our master bedroom. I thought, that's, that's a big closet. And then I realized, this is, these homes are expensive. And so it was sort of like became the street of impossible dreams for me. It's like, oh, okay. And then the this, this street of mortgage nightmares as I realized what that would be. But I just loved watching. It was, it was, you go in the kitchen, the dishes were laid out just so, house to house. About the fourth house of these five homes, I'm looking through this house, I'm thinking, this is sort of weird. It's just sort of weird. And it's not weird in a bad way, but it's just, here are the, all these furnishings, all these bedrooms just laid out just so, all, all, everything you would have, but no one's living there. It was just sort of different. No one's, no one's there. There was no life there. It's just a model. Paul, Apostle Paul, when he writes to his mentor Timothy, probably the last letter that he, that he wrote that we know of in, in, in the New Testament. He's in Rome, he's in prison, and he's writing to this young pastor in Ephesus, and he writes in part these words, 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lover of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, 
treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There's a list for you, huh? Too glad you came. And he's saying, hey, this, this is tough times. And then he, he concludes this little section with this, this statement. I've always thought it was interesting. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He says, have nothing to do with such people. That, that phrase, having a form of godliness, it looks good, but there's no life there. There's nothing inside. Reading our Gospels and going through the Gospels this year and concentrating the life of Jesus, I'm struck over and over again by the fact that the most ardent opponents of Jesus were the most religious. They were the ones who were out to get him. They were the ones who were challenging him. They were the ones who, who wanted him to be something more in their eyes than, than he actually was. The hierarchy of Judaism revolved around these leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They were the leaders of their faith, and they had their lives codified. They had their lives controlled. They knew the rules. They knew how people should live their lives if they were really serious about, about honoring God. And they benefited as well. Jesus often talked about money. He, he, he made the statement, you can't serve God in money when he was speaking to the Pharisees. And Luke records that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. These, these were men, not just religious, but they benefited from their faith as well. So in his three-year ministry, Jesus saved his strongest criticisms for the most religion. He, 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 religious. He calls them whitewashed tombs and made them very angry. And it's in this context that I want us to look at a parable. We are in a series called The Lesser Known Parables. And uh, I had a chance to pick out my parable, and I've always wondered about this parable. And I thought, I think I'd like to do a message on this parable. I could hardly wait to hear what I had to say on it, right? It's one of those things. I don't know if I want this or not. But this parable is, is found in uh, the book of Matthew, and I want us to look at it. And, uh, just to give a little bit more context, I'm going to read a, a, a larger passage, starting with verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43, here's the parable. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through, a pl through arid places and seeks rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. 
That is how it will be with this wicked generation. This is the word of God. So here, here are the Pharisees. They come to Jesus with a request. The request, and you see this at points in time through the Gospels. They come, they say, show, you know, prove, prove to us who you are. You know, let us, let us see something different. Here, you know, and, and here's the familiar refrain, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Let us, you know, convince us that you really are someone special. Now, interesting that the context of them coming, Jesus in, in the, the first part of this chapter has healed a man with a withered arm. He's made his arm whole. That's a sign, wouldn't you say? That's pretty significant. He's, he has encountered someone who is blind and is, is deaf and cannot speak, and, and he completely heals that person. Pretty dramatic, but not good enough for the Pharisees. They want, they want to see something more. And, and Jesus responds in a way that, that's, that's fairly dramatic. And you read this, you go, what does this have to do with exactly what they're asking? Well, what he's saying to them is, he, he, he points out two Old Testament figures, Jonah and Solomon. Uh, and he's saying Jonah was the guy who was sent to, to a Gentile city, Nineveh, and, and they repented. And, and he spent three days in, in, in the belly of the fish, came back and, and was obedient. He said, the Son of Man is going to do that, talking about his, of course, his resurrection uh, after, after his crucifixion. And then he points to, to Solomon. Queen of Sheba comes from the south because of Solomon's wisdom. Jesus has the power and he has the wisdom. And here he is present and yet the Pharisees cannot see anything. Show us a sign. Make us believe. And then Jesus gives this most curious of parables. So I was preparing this sermon. I, I realized that... Um, if you're like me, you roll your eyes and, you, you, and silently, maybe even audibly, you'll be critical of people who are hypocrites, Pharisees. We say the word and it almost comes out in a harsh way. You're a Pharisee. Remember the, the parable Jesus gave about the Pharisee and the tax collector who were both in, in, in the temple praying. And the Pharisee says, oh, God, thank you that I'm not like him the sinner, this tax collector. And the tax collector, then all he can pray is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, Who, which of the two is justified? And you read that, and you go, well, that Pharisee. And, and I find myself saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee, which is probably just part of the problem, right? <laughs> comparison. I often play this never-ending game of comparisons. So I, I, as I was preparing this passage, I came to a place where I had to go beyond just the narrow implications of it. Jesus, of course, is speaking to the Pharisees, but there's a wider application to me and hopefully to you too. Here's, here's, here's what I saw in this parable. This is what I think we can learn. First thing is there's an eviction, an eviction. Zach, when he gave a sermon at Herndon last week, um, he began a sermon with this question, what brought you to church today? Why did you come to church today? Really, think about that. Why, why are you here? It's just part of your normal routine. Is it something you desired to do? Were you talked into it by someone else? Were you made to come, quote unquote? Uh, why did you come? You're here to find some answers. You're here to do, you're, because you're searching. What brought you to church today? Whatever the reason, I think none of us, none of you, and I think the best of you, but I think this is, a, this is pretty solid. I don't think any of you came 
to church hoping that you'd be worse off after you left, right? Am I right? You might not have high expectations, but none of us come thinking that we're going to leave worse for the effort. We come to church for a lot of reasons. Worship, fellowship, learning, encouragement, to be challenged. In almost five decades of ministry and counseling, I found that most people come to a point in their lives where they want to be better. Just want to be better. Better than what they actually are. People make these things. I need to stop. And then you just fill in the blank. I need to stop drinking. I need to stop this pornography that I'm, that I'm dabbling in. I need to stop my anger. I need to stop my lying. I need to stop cheating. I need to stop stealing. I need to stop this adultery. I need to stop having sex with my boyfriend, my girlfriend. I need, here, here's the statement. I need to clean up my act. I need to clean up my act. Need to be better. I spoke here a few weeks ago. I asked how your New Year's resolutions were coming. Those of you around, do you remember me asking that? How are your New Year's resolutions coming? Hardly anybody does them anymore. I know that. But I mean, New Year's resolutions, why do we even think about doing that? Because we really want to get a little bit, we want areas of our lives to improve. We want to be better. And I told you that years ago, I, I uh, wanted to be in better shape, and I, I started on a, on a uh, uh, exercise program with, with a trainer. It didn't last very long. And uh, about 10 years later, for my New Year's that year, I, I went back to this, I gotta be in better shape. I, I, gotta, I gotta feel better. I've, I've gotta give attention to making sure that my, that my physical being is, is, is paid attention to and I'm getting better. So. This is about two years ago. I decided I would join the YMCA. That's, that's sort of a step in the right direction, right? Physically, the YMCA, you go there to exercise. You have, have those, those encouraging things happening there. So I showed up at, at the Y in, in, in uh, Winter Park. And uh, I sat down with this young man. And I said, I want to join the Y. He said, well, sir, I'm glad you came. He took me through the process. You have to pay a monthly fee. Uh, I decided to. to include my wife, you know, and do a family plan. You know, if God led her like he's leading me, maybe that would be good. And uh, so he was, he was really a nice guy. And then right at the end, he got me because he said, sir, he says, I, I forgot to tell you, I don't want to embarrass you by this, but, you know, we give discounts for people over, over 60. He said, are you over 60, sir? Bless his heart. I just love that guy for asking that question. I said, yeah, I, I, I'm 67. He goes, oh. You don't look that. He, oh, he had me. He had me. I'd sign up. I'd sign up for the ten-year plan right then. Ah, I'm gonna get better. Really, I. This was the year. I was gonna do it. My senior discount sealed the deal, right? It was Saint Bernard of Clairvaux that said, "The road to hell is paved with good intentions." Isn't that true? I had every intention. I was going to cast out the impure spirit of sloth, of laziness. Going to do it this year. I've yet to have someone answer this question, how is your spiritual life with its perfect? I'm walking in perfect harmony with God, have no need for change. No one has ever answered that way. And if they did, I would look at them with a funny look anyway, because I don't think it's possible, is it? No, it's more like, well, 
even if it's good, well, there, there, there's always room for improvement. If you're like me, you're always dealing, I don't know if you can identify with me, you're always dealing with impure spirits. They're there. I'm always trying to, throw, I'm trying to evict them, get them out of my house. Eviction. Second thing in this parable. Fascinating. When this, the spirit leaves, verse 44, it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. And not just unoccupied, but this is the curious thing to me. Swept clean and put in order. Something bad's been removed. We've tidied up, but nothing's there. It's, it's, it's empty. So there's an eviction, but then there's emptiness. I was convinced I was going to get in better physical shape. Here's what I did. You ready? I, I, I put my workout times in my schedule. That'll get it done, right? If it's in the schedule, it'll get done. Yeah, not so much. Because sometimes I scheduled after I work. You know, you get to the end of a work day, you're just going, I, I just, not today. I scheduled, I bought a gym bag. I went, to, I went to Dick's, I bought a gym bag. And I bought a lock for my locker. This lock that had a combination, it was like my high school locker lock, really. It's almost like a carbon copy of that yellow lock. I, you know, and I, I had a hard time remembering the, the uh, combination, but I, I put it in my phone so I could remember it. I locked up my stuff when I went to the lock. I thought, this is it. I've got all the stuff. I've purchased things. And I, I thought I had eliminated all this impure spirit. I was now a man of true discipline. That lasted four months. And then I just didn't go back. It's fascinating that once the spirit leaves the house, it's swept clean and put in order. Isn't this a good thing, right? Not so much. It looks perfect. See, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Nobody's there. It hasn't been replaced with anything. And this is the problem with all self-help efforts. The white knuckling of, of, of my trying to get better. In and of myself, I, I, I can't do it. And all these, all these efforts I've made are destined to break down and fail. You probably have things like this too. The things that you want, the things that you want to clean up. I need to stop drinking. I need to need to lose weight. I need to get in shape. I need to stop the drug addiction. I need to quit lusting. I need to stop flirting with that man or that woman. No more trolling websites that lead to debauchery. All those efforts, in and of themselves, ultimately, ultimately lead to failure. We have a ministry in our church called Regroup. I hope uh, many of you have, have uh, had the privilege of being there. It's a, it's a great ministry. And it's a, a group of people that are saying to God and to one another, hey, we're not going to let the things that have tripped us up on a, on a habitual uh, level keep us that way. And it's a, and it's a, it's a very God-focused 12-step program. And if you know the 12 steps of, of Alcoholics Anonymous or any of, of the uh, of the 12 step groups, you know that the first step is this, and it's very, very profound. It was begun by a group of Christians in, in England. 
who, who had problems with alcohol, and they said, we can't shake this, what do we need to do? Their first thing was this, we admitted we were powerless over our alcohol, and you can fill in whatever you want to there. We didn't have that power long-term to fix it. Then the second step is we came to believe a power greater than ourselves was needed in our lives to make sure that we were going to deal with it in a, in a proper way. Jesus was saying to these Pharisees, look, yeah, you, you've cast out some impure spirits and you've tidied things up. Lights are on, no one's home. And watch out. So there's eviction, there's emptiness, and then there's this awful implosion at the end of this parable. 40 verse 45, then it goes with it, uh, and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. House is clean but empty. What does that mean? It means that what should be present isn't there. There needs to be something present that is life-giving. House is not a home. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he summarizes his, his theological thoughts, these weighty theological thoughts with this wonderful prayer, this lengthy prayer. And one of the things he prays for the believers at that, in, in that area is that, that Jesus would dwell in their hearts. Not just come in and, and spend some time but dwell. When someone dwells someone, they live there. They make it their home. If our lives are not a dwelling place for the Lord, then things can really break down. The impure spirits will come back, and they will come back in multiples. And many of them will be worse than the ones that we dealt with before. Sometimes I get distracted, and sometimes in my life when I get distracted, I, I, I can sort of remove myself from Jesus' presence in my life. I forget. And when that happens, then impure spirits can come back. And, you know, when I, when I read this parable, I always thought these impure spirits, these demons, which is these horrible people coming back, yelling, screaming, you know, knocking on walls, things like that. That's not what the impure spirits do, I don't think. I think they come back in this sort of mild-mannered, almost sneaky kind of way. So if no one's home in, in, in my heart, what, what happens? If I'm, if I'm not in fellowship with, with Christ, the impure spirit of laziness is the first one to come back. The, 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 the spirit that says, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have to do that now. You don't have the strength to do that. That's, and that, that impure spirit of laziness comes back, and, and then it leads to the impure spirit of procrastination. I don't have to do that yet. I, 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 don't, need to, I don't need to pay attention to those things now. I, I, I just don't have time. I'll put it off. A lot of times I'm tempted with the impure spirit of gossip. You know what gossip is? It's the comparison trap that we get into. When you gossip, you know what you're saying? Ah, I found someone who's worse off than me. And that sort of feels good, doesn't it? That impure spirit of gossip 
then can be followed by this, the, the impure spirit of lust. And those lonely late night hours, the distractions come that way. And that can lead many times the impure spirit of bitterness and then the impure spirit of depression and the impure spirit of fear. Those things worse than, the, worse than what was before. Because somehow, in my, in my efforts to clean up my life, I forgot something very, very important. Yes, there's nothing more annoying than a religious hypocrite. I, I, I agree. I was watching a show recently on Netflix. It was a police drama. I love police dramas and mysteries. And there was a minister who was killed. And they're trying to find out you know, who the culprit was. And, and as the episode went on, you found out that this was not a good man. He said he was good, but he'd done some pretty bad things. And the first response I had was, here we go, picking on the Christians again. They're all, always the bad guys in all these dramas. And then as the time went on, I'm going, yeah, but I sort of feel that. Then I started not to like the guy. He's a fictitious character, and I'm not liking the guy. And then I realized, I get it. I'm the hypocrite. I'm the hypocrite. What I don't like in him is really what I don't like in me. When I lose focus. I want to look good. I want everything clean. I want everything put in order. That's the way I want people to look at me. And I want a sign. I want God to do something for me. I'm doing all this work, looking good. Now God has to show up, right? It's just like the Pharisees. No. That's the wrong perspective. So I finally figured it out. It, it, it helped to go through this, this um, passage, but I finally figured it out, and you'll be glad to know what I need to be doing to be truly physical, physically fit. And I just thought I'd share these things with you today because if you, if you find anything helpful here, I think, I think this might help you too. This is what I need. I need a loving and gracious trainer. I cannot do it on my own. I emphasize loving and gracious, okay? I want someone who's been through all the struggles I've been through, but has been successful in living out what it means to be perfectly physically fit, right? I need someone who's consistently pushing me to improve but not a yeller. You can't yell at me. None of this, run faster or lift that again. No, I don't like that. It makes me anxious. I need someone who doesn't judge me for being way out of shape. I need someone who will come to my house at any time that I deem best. I don't want to go to a gym. I don't want to be with other people who look better than I do. I want someone to come to me, right? Just come to my house. And I want you to provide... Well, whoever that person is, I want them to provide all the equipment that I need to work out. I don't have to provide any equipment, and I want to do it at any time that I think is best. I want them available at all times. I need someone who will come every day and be available at any time. So if I you know, feel like I need to work out late at night, they'll be there. They're just going to be there. I need someone who will knock on my door and not be offended if I don't answer it, or if I answer and don't want to train I want you to love me anyway, right? And top that all off, I need this person to do it free of charge. <laughs> no money. Now, is that too much to ask? 
Think about it. That's what I need. The world has a right to be upset at, at people of faith who don't live it out. Jesus certainly was. But this isn't just a parable for Jesus' day. It's a story that hits home today. God does not want continual self-improvement projects. You know what he wants? He wants a relationship with me and you. Quit fussing with getting better first. Start with a relationship. Revelation 3.20, Jesus is speaking. Seven letters to seven churches that, that are recorded there in that last book of the Bible, the Church of Laodicea. Lukewarm, lost their first love, fell out of the relationship. Here's what Jesus says. Behold, look, I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. And if anyone opens that door, I will come in and have fellowship with him. A relationship. So here's what I need to be truly spiritually fit. Figured that one out too, more importantly. I need a loving and gracious redeemer. I need a redeemer who has been through all the struggles I've had, but has been successful in living out what it means to be perfect spiritually. I need someone who is consistently pushing me to improve, but not a yeller. I need someone who doesn't judge me for being where I shouldn't be spiritually. I need someone who will come to my house, my life, at any time. And who provide me with all the power that I need to live the life that I truly want to live. <laughs> I need someone who will come every day, every minute, every moment. Someone who will knock on my door. Not be offended if I, in some sinful fit, don't answer it, or some selfish reaction, just say, I don't have time for you. But he'll keep coming. I need this person to do it free of charge. He's there. He's there. He wants a relationship with me. He wants a relationship with you. So, is your life, is your life a model home? Or is it a real home for the living Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable that looks a little obscure when you first look at it, but Lord, I pray for me, for every man and woman here, that we would see that we need to stop this cleaning up our act first and begin with a relationship with you. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't, hasn't had the privilege of beginning that relationship, I pray today would be the day simply by a request of asking you in. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that we would 
take an inventory of where we are and that we would put you in the center, that we would allow you to dwell in us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for the peace that you give. Thank you for the sacrifice you made for us on the cross. And I pray these things in Jesus' glorious, righteous, powerful, and holy name. Amen.